God speaks to us in his word in Genesis 3, 14 through 21. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise her head he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring, bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Leslie. Good morning. Everybody doing okay? We went straight. It was a 24-hour period. It took about 10 minutes for us to go uh, from summer to winter. And so uh, welcome to winter, I guess. At Frontline, really glad you guys are here. My name is Ben. If I haven't met you yet, uh, really are honored that you would be with us today. If there's anything that we can do for you at all, uh, we, would, we would love to help you. I, I'm going to ask one thing of you before I jump into this. Uh, we have invite cards for this sermon series, this sermon series on Genesis. If you're new to the church, um, you, uh, you probably don't know, and maybe this is your first time here, that we are preaching through uh, a book of the Bible called Genesis, which is literally the beginning. And I want, I want to invite you to grab these invite cards and hand them out to your friends that don't know Jesus or maybe don't have a church home, don't have a place to go. Um, everyone is curious about the way things began. And you are, I am, and the Bible actually helps us see very clearly how things began, why they are the way that they are. And if you remember, if you were here last week, maybe you weren't, um, we've preached on the Genesis 3, which is the story of the fall. We're still in Genesis 3, but we talked about the fall last week. And maybe you've never heard that terminology. Maybe you're like, I thought that's the season uh, on the calendar. No, what I'm talking about is the fall of mankind. So essentially this, the question that's being asked by us all the time, and that's asked in the Bible, but that's answered in the Bible in Genesis, is why are things so hard? Why is your life hard? Um, why are things around us so hard? Why is it that we can't string together a series of like multiple days where we go, okay, for like a 10-day stretch, everything went my way. I had all the money that I needed. All relationships were golden. <laughs> everything worked out perfectly fine in that 10-day stretch. I, maybe you can find out. I'm just picking an arbitrary number, but maybe you can find a literal 10-day stretch of that. I don't think I can in my life, or at least I didn't know about it. Maybe when I was like in diapers, I go, that was pretty good. That was about a whole year's worth of just people doing everything for me. I didn't have to stress about money. We were golden. 
why is it? Why is it that things are so hard? So the fall actually addresses that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a little bit of time recapping what the fall is. And then today we're going to talk about the ramifications of the fall. So there's a thing that happened where man sinned against God. Rebellion entered the world. That is the fall of man. But why does it matter so much for us now? Because what came after the fall was what the Bible calls the curse or cursing. Um, so we're going to get into that today. I want to talk first about this, about Genesis 3 and the first part of 3. What happened in the fall was this. God had created everything and good. He said it was good. He declared that it was good. And then he created male and female in his image, the only thing in his image that he created, the Imago Dei. And he said that it was very good, male and female. He created man and woman not because he was bored or he was lonely. God does not experience that type of loneliness. God himself has been completely satisfied in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit through eternity. Nobody made God. Nobody made Jesus. Nobody made the Holy Spirit. They are three in one, perfectly satisfied. So God created out of love. God is love. He's both justice and love 100% all the time. You cannot separate those two things. So God is also creator. So he created man and woman out of love. And he created them out of love for a purpose in love. What we've learned so far, if you've been here with us, is that God is not just making out of boredom. He's creating the earth. He's forming the earth um, that exactly parallels to what the Old Testament would say that we formed the temple with. Seven days to build the temple. Multiple other things. We need priests in the temple. Priests were designated to be placed in the temple to work and keep it. What was the point of the temple? The point was this. It was the resting place. Any temple would have been the resting place, the house of a king or a deity. So seven days it took to build the temple, and then on the seventh a deity would be presented or a king would be presented in whatever temple it is. Well, seven days of earth's creation. On the seventh day, God took a seat. He rested. He made man and woman in his image for the purpose of curating the temple, preparing the earth, subduing the earth. He told them, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over it and subdue it. Why? For worship of God. The earth was created to be a house for the resting place of God's power and his presence among his people. In Revelation, we see this. The, re the dwelling place of God is with man. That was what they were created for. The problem is this, is that a serpent comes or the great deceiver comes and he lies to them. And he tells them, he gets them to question God's word. He says, did God actually say, don't eat of the tree? And he says, yes. He said, don't eat of the tree. There's the tree of life in the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said to Adam and Eve, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Don't eat of it. You can have all, of the, all the trees in the garden, all the fruit. It's all yours except this one tree, the tree of the life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. Don't eat of it. Well, the serpent comes and he says, did God actually say that? And he gets them to question God's very word. And then he says something egregious because she said, yes. He said, if we eat of the tree, we'll die. And then what he tells them is what the Bible calls the lie, which is this. You will not die. You will not surely die. For when you eat of the tree, God knows that you will know what he knows and you will be like him. Your eyes will be open. 
The Bible calls it the lie because it's the lie upon which all other lies are built. It's that one lie that you can be God, that you don't need God, that you can design the earth, your surroundings, you can design your worldview however you see fit, depending on how you feel that day. And it's what the whole world has been against since this moment. There's the serpent, there's the lie, but it's really important that we don't separate the fact that Adam and Eve had this within them. This isn't just the devil made me do it. You might be thinking, okay, this makes sense. I knew that I was inherently good. <laughs> I knew that I would have not have chosen that. No, you would have. Adam and Eve did. They had a choice within them because see, here's the thing is they were made in the image of God, but they weren't made as God. So it's not that they were incapable of sin like God. It's that they had every capability. So the marriage is this, is the serpent lies. He ignites the thing that is in Adam and Eve and they make a choice. The serpent, the lie, and the choice. And from the choice of Adam and Eve to eat of the tree that God told them not to eat of because they wanted to be God, they wanted to be just like him, they wanted to dictate the world, create the world, create their world as if they were God. What happened was the great tragedy of man and a curse follows, and the great tragedy is this. It's not that they were missing out on the fruit. It's not that all of a sudden that the garden wasn't available to them. What made the garden the garden was the very presence of the living God, and now what you have is the separation of man and woman from God's presence because God cannot be in the presence of wickedness or rebellion. He can't. That's the truth. Is God love? Yes. Is God also 100% just as much justice as he is love? Yes. His justice will not allow him to be in the presence of even one minor sin. Man and woman are separated from each other. They are now ashamed. They put fig leaves on and they're also separated from God. And the problem that we have, and I think the thing that we, that we have to be aware of is that the temptation that we might have is to see the fall through the lens of the fall. We actually, because what the fall did was it ignited our self-absorption, our self-autonomy to help us to see like, I can be God, I can figure this out, this is all about me. So then we look at what happened in the fall through the lens of the fall and we say, okay man, the fall stinks because we don't have the Garden of Eden anymore. We don't have the trees or the whatever, the harmony or the unity between man and woman, all good things to want, but they're not ultimate. The ultimate thing, if we're looking at the lens of the fall through God's eyes, we will see that the worst thing that happened was the separation of God and man. Again, what made the garden paradise was the presence of God, not the stuff. Life before the fall was life, capital L. It was the life that comes from God, from his presence. Without the presence of God, we get the opposite of life, which is death. David Atkinson says this, but behind and beneath all our experience of alienation is the deeper truth of God's alienation from what he has made. It is this which is worked out in the cursings, the toil, the banishment, and the death to which these somber verses now turn our attention. So that's what happened in the fall and what happens because of the fall is this. The things that God made as blessing, male and female, the trees, the ground, several things, 
those things that God made as a blessing have now become the opposite of that in several ways. They've become a curse. The fall shattered the very fabric of blessing in this world. The first curse is issued to the serpent, but we're not going to go there first. I, I don't want to start there. We'll come back to it. I want us to look at what the curse does and what it means for us, and then how does God like plan for this curse? What does he do for us? So here's the curses. The first is this. They're going to be a mix of blessing and pain. Childbearing is now both good and painful. It's not, it's not just good. It's also painful. So here's what he says to the woman. To the woman, he said, God, after he had come to them and they had confessed to being disobedient, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And every mom in the room who's ever had a baby said amen. It's physically painful. That's, that goes without saying. It is physically painful, of course, but it is way so much more than just physical pain. And it has very little to do with actual birthing of a human, but it has everything to do with how twisted now our concept of relationships and the things that God meant as blessing become idolatry to us. Really what's happening here is pain and childbearing carries the literary insinuation of conception anxiety. If you were to read it sort of as it's written, that would be what is implied. It's the anxiety surrounding all types of things with women and their kids. Can I get married? Will it, I mean, can I get pregnant? Will it work? Will the baby be healthy? Will I survive? Will they survive? And not to mention, if the baby does come out healthy, then there's the, the constant anxiety that moms feel about, am I a good mother? Even after a child is grown, you could literally, your child could grow up and be the best president of the United States in the history of the world, love Jesus and, you know, work at orphanages in his free time or whatever it is. I mean, just pick all the things that you would want as a mom and you still, because of the curse, you still would feel anxiety about the way that you raised your child. Why is that? What is that? That's part of the curse. Uh, my mom, who is a saint... Um, her name's Beverly. She's awesome. She, um, she was basically a single mom, raised three kids pretty much by herself. And um, my mom would say a lot of times, she goes, I just feel like the reason I was put on this earth is just to, to be a mom. And I think she was good at it. I don't think that was the reason she's put on this earth, but I think that she was good at it. But even my mom, who's got three pretty decent children, you know, we're not all, I don't think any of us are, are that crazy, but... Maybe I'm the crazy one. I have no idea. But she would constantly, I remember my mom would constantly just be anxious about the way that she was raising her, and even now, she's got grown. I'm 42, I'm the youngest one. Still anxious about her kids. Why is that? That is the curse. It's anxiety about mothering. What was meant to be stress-free when God said be fruitful and multiply is now attached to all manner of anxiety in every way. The sheer isolation or the insecurity and stress a woman can feel surrounding the prospect of children um, the birthing process, mothering of children, and their birth is a byproduct of the fall and its curse. But also, it's also a beautiful thing. We really see 
a glimpse of the nature of God when we see a mom at work with her children. Or when we just see a woman, period, just be nurturing. Uh, Paul talks about, as an elder, the Apostle Paul, a man, says, I went around like a nursing mom to the congregation. Really beautiful. The blessing of children and the nature of mothering is a sign that God's design from the beginning is good, but now it's mixed with cursing. Also, marriage. Marriage is both good and painful. He says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He's now talking uh, to the woman again. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It also reads this way. Your desire shall be for your husband. Meaning there's a couple ways that we can go. There's several ways, but a couple dominant. One is a desire to control him, of course. And then also a desire for him to be your God. Maybe this one's more important. This, is, this has to do with not just with women and towards men. This has to do with relationships in general, marriage in general. There's a desire for them to be something that they could never in a million years. I mean, you are asking a person who deserves separation from God. You're asking a person who deserves death to be life for you, which is so easy. It's like, that's a concept that we realize, we know we say yes and amen, but in your marriage or just in our relationships, why do we put that kind of weight of glory on someone else? Why do we expect people to be Jesus for us? Why do we turn our spouse or our friends or our boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, into an object of our worship? It's the curse. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. That he shall rule over you. Remember, this is a corruption. This is a byproduct of the curse now. He shall rule over you. Contrary to God's design, it's now corrupted. Man and woman in different but dominating postures. Manipulation, vindictive, anxiety, stress, strife, all because of the curse, conflict, insecurities, and tension. Marriage is now both good but, and painful. It's mixed with cursing. Also work, work is now both good and hard. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Work was invented, created to be a blessing, an act of worship in and of itself. Before the fall, it was the man was supposed to work and keep the earth to worship God. And here's what I imagine it was like. I was not there, but I just imagine this. If work was only a blessing, then that meant every time you threw seeds on the ground, um, you got the exact right amount of soil temperature, you got the exact right amount of nutrients, the exact right amount of water, and the seed sprouted, and it was the best fruit of all time, or best whatever, vegetables of all time. That sounds amazing. Anybody in here tried to plant seed ever in their life? It is not easy. Or it meant that when you tried things, like for me, when I studied or read or prepared for a sermon, I remembered what I read. <laughs> or it made sense to me, I'd have to go back and read it 12 times like I currently have to. 
Any students in the room want to say amen? Okay, apparently I'm worse than I thought. Only one of y'all agreed with me. It meant that when you worked, you got the money and it, it, you put your hands to something and it, and it, and it worked. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, but now, even food, even finding our food, working on the ground, it's, it's now there's thorns and thistles. It'll be by the sweat of your brow that you'll eat, God says now. It was intended to be a way for man to subdue the earth and worship God. But now thorns and thistles. Even the gift of living, life itself, is now accompanied by death. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. He's talking about eating a lot. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Just interesting, so much about food here. It's like no longer do you just have bread. No longer do you just have the food that you need. You have to work and you'll eat it. And every time you take a bite, you'll remember the grocery bill that it costs you to get there. And if you have kids, you already face the anxiety of having kids and you have to face the anxiety of budgeting to go like, man, I've got, we got a lot and stuff in 2023, you know, all of us are feeling the grocery bill right now. Amen. There it is. Took a while, but we got there. Why is that? That's the curse. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat the bread uh, till you return to the ground. It's also interesting that the last time that we see eating was Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now even eating, even eating is cursed. Even the way that we sustain our life is cursed. Life is a struggle because of the curse. There is simply no way of denying that. If you even, if you just got so lucky as to, I don't know, somehow you've avoided heartbreaking relationships. Somehow you've avoided the stress and anxiety of a grocery bill, like you just have money. Somehow you've avoided the stress of marriage. Somehow you've avoided the stress of kids or the stress of whatever it is. If it's just somehow you've avoided those individual stresses no one here who is even a little bit honest, no one who's ever lived on earth would be able to tell me in honesty that they've avoided all stresses, that anxiety that comes out of nowhere. Does anybody else have a string of days where you're like, or months, you'd be like, everything's going pretty good. I mean, I don't feel anxious. I don't want, and then overnight or whatever, you'll just, anxiety will come upon you and be like, I'm stressed about this thing over here that I've never thought about in my life. Now, why was I not stressed about that same thing yesterday? Has this thing changed? Nope. Has, is there something going on with this thing? Has it this inanimate object, like all of a sudden, like threatened my life? Nope. But I act like it's got the power over me. Where does that come from? Again, I'm just trying to get you to see like, even if you've avoided the pain and stress of just regular things, there's still that thing that's in you and in me. Let's be honest with each other. We just have anxiety. The earth is cursed. It is cursed. And then there's the curse to the serpent, which is, this is so important for us because I have to get you to see something about this serpent. This is more than just a snake. There's a reason why God at first cursed this serpent. The first curse will be the final curse. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. At first glance, we might think like, man, God was really harsh to that poor snake, but that does explain why the snake has no arms or legs. This is not about the snake at all. This is about what the serpent was. This is about reptile. The serpent was the enemy of our souls, the dark one the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. God has cursed him. Let's look at how. Poetry here is used to describe the ultimate curse towards our greatest enemy. A couple of different things he says, on your belly you shall go. John Walton points this out. This is in contrast to raising its head. It's head up to strike. The serpent on its belly is non-threatening while the one reared up is protecting or attacking. God says, I'm gonna remove your ability to attack. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Also that, it's like, what does that matter? Okay, so the serpent now can't strike and he has to eat dirt? Well, if you remember about dust, what God says to Adam is you will return to dust and so you will die and you came from dust and now you will return to dust. To Adam, the curse pronounces an eventual death. God is pronouncing an eventual death to the snake. And he's saying, I will forever remove your fangs and I will forever pronounce you as dead. The power that you have will not be powerful anymore. This is the thing about the worldview of the Bible is we understand the world through the fact of God who is a conqueror, God who is the sustainer of life himself. If we can understand the world through the curse and the fall, it will help us understand two things. At work at all times is this serpent. He is the devil. He is that one. The Bible talks about those outside of God being sons of disobedience. The devil is the author of disobedience. He's also the author of confusion. There are dark things, dark forces, constantly at work behind the scenes to get us to believe and live out the lie. But the other thing that's at work, and this is very important, we cannot adopt the mindset of the devil made me do it because that's just not, we also have a role to play. We have our flesh. So what you have at work constantly is the serpent, the devil, and our flesh. He ignites our flesh, the thing that is already in us, and tells us, yes, go for it. It's a dangerous ideal to separate the two. Dark forces working behind the scenes to empower our flesh to continue to believe the lie that was told in the garden. Here's how it happened in the garden. The first thing, they questioned, uh, the, the serpent questioned God's word. He said, did God actually say, and that's where we go. We question the word of God. We go, man, if he just, this doesn't sit right with me, what's in this word. I wish it was said another way. And we start to bend it and even gets to the point where we break it and we say, it should be different. So we question God's word. And then also we question God's character. When the enemy said to Adam and Eve, you will not surely die. We now are questioning his word and his character. 
And then finally, we place ourselves at the place that was only meant for God because when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be God. There's an enemy that is feeding us at all times, is feeding this stuff in us, is igniting the flesh in us. You should be God. You should. You should, you should dictate the world. You should write up the blueprints for your own worldview and then you should just live by that, your own code. That's what the enemy tells us. Ephesians 6 says this, for we don't flesh, wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That tells us right there, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. There are things at work. Genesis is telling us clearly the origin of darkness, the origin of sin and rebellion. But that's not all it's telling us. What I'm about to tell you is, it is mind-blowing. It is the greatest hint of all time. God is about to give us the hint that none of this actually surprises him and he's had a plan all along. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Between your offspring and her offspring. What offspring comes from the serpent? Death, chaos, decay, rebellion, missing the presence of God, evil, wickedness, you name it, that offspring comes from the devil. But then he says, from the woman will come another offspring, and this offspring, he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Did you know that Jesus Christ is in the lineage of Eve? Did you know that? Did you know that he is her offspring? To the serpent, the dark one, he says, between your offspring and her offspring, I will put enmity. There's gonna be a kind of fight. There's gonna be a kind of battle, a cosmic fight. And here's what's gonna happen. You are going to bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. I love this picture. If you can see it, on the left you have uh, Eve. Do you see the serpent wrapped around her leg? Do you see Mary pregnant with Jesus and she is stepping on the head of the serpent, comforting Eve? This is an Advent picture. We'll show it during Advent. We'll show it during Christmas. But I just, wanna, I just wanna help us remember something or maybe think about it the first time. Look, and let me give um, a disclaimer. I love Christmas. I love the pageantry of Christmas. Put the trains running around the thing. You know what I mean? A bunch of Santa Clauses, fake gifts on the tree. I don't care. I just want it to look like as much lights, whatever. This this sanctuary will be transformed during Christmas time. We love it. I love all of that. But the thing about Christmas is it's not cute. There's nothing about actual Christmas that's cute. Christmas is God 
coming into enemy territory through Mary to wage war against the serpent. That's Christmas. It's D-Day. It's Jesus himself being born of a virgin to crush, finally, the head of the serpent. So what happens in Genesis 3 goes all the way to be met with Jesus being born to do the work against the serpent that Adam and Eve never could. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's, he's, he's telling that to the serpent. What does that mean, shall bruise his heel? Offspring who crushes the head of the serpent won't come out unscathed. He will be bruised. The fact is this, is that sin has been committed. Blood must be shed. A sacrifice must be made in order to confront and defeat the great enemy of our souls. You cannot just wish it away. There has to be something done. Genesis 3, 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What an interesting thing. Is this just God being fashionable, saying, oh, I've got you something better that fits better? No, what Adam and Eve did in their shame and their nakedness, they made fig leaves to cover them. But it wasn't sufficient. It probably literally covered them. But now God goes and kills an animal and puts those skins on them to cover them. Why is that? The first death, the first literal death we see is God killing something to cover the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve. A living, breathing, sinless thing must die to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. Their action led to the death of something else that was totally pure and didn't deserve to die so that they could be covered. If you know anything about the Old Testament sacrificial system, which the readers of Genesis would know about, they would know about atonement. They would know about the perfect lamb, finding a lamb, that atoning lamb that once a year you sacrifice for the sins of the people. What's happened here is God has given us the ultimate foreshadowing of the war that he's going to wage against the serpent on our behalf and it's gonna be bruised heel because he's gonna have to go to the cross and die. Even though he will crush the head of the serpent, how he will do that will be through brutality. He'll have to go to the cross. And then what happens is profound in every way. Our nakedness, our shame from our sin that started with our great-great-grandparents in the fall is now covered up by the death of a living, breathing, sinless person in Jesus. The skins that they got, we get something better. God is showing us that I'm gonna cover you with my righteousness. I'm gonna cover you with myself. I'm gonna clothe you. I'm gonna go and do the thing that you should be doing, but you're not because you can't because you've tried to cover yourself in fig leaves through the law, through trying to be good, through whatever, and you just don't realize that that's not sufficient. So what I've got to do now is on your, your behalf because I love you. Because of the grace that I have for you, I'm going to go, I'm going to take the strike from the serpent on my heel, but in turn, I'm going to crush his head so that you can be clothed in righteousness. That's the gospel. 
Revelation 21, we see God say, the dwelling place of God is with man. And then in Revelation 22, it says this, blessed are those who wash their robes, clean robes, the clean robe, the spotless, unblemished, sinless robe of Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. In the midst of the garden, there were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Do you remember what happened when he banished him from the garden? He placed cherubim in a flaming sword to guard the garden. There's no way into the tree of life. It says to guard the tree of life. There's no way into the tree of life unless you go through the sword that God placed there. Somebody has to go through the sword. You can't walk around it. You can't, it's facing all sides. There's a sword guarding the tree of life. You know who goes through the sword? For you and for me, Jesus goes through the sword. I mean, this is the gospel. This is why it's good news. And even though it's offensive for you to learn that you can in no way ever go through that sword, you cannot get back to the presence of God. You cannot get back to the tree of life. Even though that's offensive, it's still the best news you'll ever hear in your life because you cannot deny the fact that you never could, even on your best day, you could never do what is enough to go through that sword again. But Christ did it. He did it. And it worked. Totally worked. So how do we live? What do we do now? If you're not a Christian or maybe today you have been in church a bunch, which is, there's a lot of people here every Sunday like that that have been in church a lot, but are in danger of losing their soul. If that's you and you have not trusted Christ, you haven't believed the gospel yet, I wanna invite you to believe the gospel today. If you are a Christian in the room, um, I wanna ask you to do a few things. Remember that God's presence is the ultimate blessing. Pursue it. Pursue the presence of God. And that means in all the things in your life, which is everything, but the things that God is highlighting right now that are affected by the curse, how we make idols out of our relationships or out of our kids or out of our, the things that we don't have or our school or whatever. Without the presence of God, those things become tyrannical. And they lead us into darkness. Put the presence of God at the center and the main point of our families, our marriages, our singleness, our careers, etc., your job, whatever it is, school. If we put God at the center of that by remembering the gospel, then they become acts of worship and they reverse the curse. They, they actually become that thing. We become how God created us to work and keep our work. <laughs> to work and keep our relationships, to work and keep the things that you think you deserve but you don't have. To lay that all at the feet of God and to go, God, I, you're the blessing of my life. Hey, married people, listen to me. I don't know how great or not great your spouse is. I would assume there's some good ones in the room at least. <laughs> I don't know. I know of a fact that there's some good ones because I know a lot of you guys. Um, you are, the, the clock is ticking when that person when you try to replace God with them, that you will end up becoming something you never intended to be. And then they 
can never be the thing that you wanted them to be. And one old pastor told me at one point, he said, those things that we idolize, we eventually demonize, which is true. So I would invite you today to to put God at that place. He's the one that deserves to be there. So whatever it is, say, God, um, your will be done in my life, in my marriage, as it is in heaven. I want your presence more than I want the stuff that doesn't get me what you get me. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added. All the things that God knows that you need, which is rarely things that we want. Put God at the center of your life and then remember this, Christ's sacrifice is the ultimate reality. Does it not blow your mind that even in Genesis 3, God was writing into the fabric of humanity the sacrifice of his son. So my thing is this, worship him. And it doesn't really matter much what you feel like doing. It matters that he's worthy. Worship him. Worship him. Sing, pray, go to work and worship. Drive in your car and worship God. Be thankful, be grateful. Place gratefulness and the fruit of spirit in your life. Worship him. He's worthy of worship. Let's stand.